My name is Sasha Jenkin. I've always been fascinated by what makes people tick and I've been fortunate enough to pursue this interest in my work as a therapist for the best part of the last 20 years. So many of us struggle with liking ourselves. I notice this challenge in people regardless of their status or life experience and it's something I've grappled with clients and with myself, finding a way to like ourselves, to sit with who we are and say, I'm okay. In this podcast, I discuss this subject with other professionals who work with people, counsellors, therapists, mediators and coaches amongst others, to uncover how they feel it within themselves and how they work on it with their clients. So, join us in the Validation Lounge, discover the diverse ideas and ways of working in the self-help field, get to learn more about human beings, and you might even learn to like yourself a little more. Hello, Phil Georgiou, and welcome to the Validation Lounge. Um, We're talking to Phil today. I think you're in Puglia, is that right? I'm in Puglia in Italy at the moment, yeah, exactly. Lovely. On holiday. Oh, fantastic. And thank you for taking the time today. Um, And I wondered if you could just take a little bit of time to introduce yourself and let let us know um, your background and your areas of interest and experience. Sure. So, um, yeah, my name is Phil Georgiou. Uh, I'm from the UK originally, um, but from a sort of a mixed Greek, Irish, Australian background. Um, So I come from quite a sort of a mixed family. Um, I trained and now I live in Italy, uh, but I've lived in various countries around the world. I've lived in Italy, I've lived in Egypt, I've lived in Israel, uh, Greece, in Germany. Um, so ever since, I've been, ever since I was about 17 years old, I'm now 52, um, I've done a fair bit of living and working in other countries. Um, I trained as a psychotherapist in the UK at Regents University School of Psychotherapy um, I completed my training probably 21 years ago now, I think. And I think as with most therapists, how you begin to train isn't necessarily how you end up practicing, but it does provide a sort of a basis. So originally my training was um, in phenomenology and existentialist approaches to psychotherapy, um, but it was also integrating really uh, gestalt um, and psychoanalytic, psychodynamic approaches as well. Um, that's changed quite a lot over the years. So now um, I, I, I'm often thinking about um, about Gestalt. I'm very often thinking about psychoanal- psychoanalysis and also um, uh, phenomenology, but I'm also thinking a lot about an approach that I use regularly, uh, particularly in relation to trauma, which is called EMDR, which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing which is an eye movement mm-hmm. treatment that we use for trauma. Um, and I also think a lot about family systems um, uh, and, and sort of thinking about the, the system as a whole rather than just the individual in front of me. So I'm thinking about the individual, um, the wider world, the family that mm. come from, the community in which they, in which they, they live. Um, mm-hmm. So that's something about my training. Um, Experience-wise, I mean, I, I, I work in all sorts of um, different environments. So I work in private practice, uh, and where I see adults. Um, I also have worked for the last 10 years in an international school where I'm the supervisor of the, uh, wellness center. So I supervise a psychologist, a counselor and two nurses. And I also have a company which is, which consists of a 24 seven counseling, emotional support helpline, 
as well as crisis management and uh, managing emergencies. And that's specifically in relation in relation to uh, students, whether they're studying abroad internationally or whether they're studying in their home country. So we currently have helplines in, in uh, Spain, in Italy, in France, in the UK um, and in Switzerland. The company's called Mondo Equilibrio, although we're about to relaunch it, actually, and we're going to be called Mind Hammock. Well, there's a lot there. Yes, a lot of um, international stuff as well, mm. um, spanning different different countries in your in sort of your growing up, but also who you're working with too now. Absolutely. And yeah. um, and when I say the word validation, what does that what does that mean to you? I think it's a, it's a really interesting area of validation. I think it's validation is very much about not only being seen, um, about being made visible by yourself and others. And I don't mean just physically, though. I mean almost sort of you, who, who you are intrinsically, something about your soul, something about uh, the unique characteristics that make you you. Mm. And being seen and validated in a way that I think I would turn to the work of Carl Rogers and his, his work and his thoughts around what he called unconditional positive regard, so that that's somebody who, without judgment, either somebody else or, and or yourself, who, without judgment and without conditions, loves you and respects you unconditionally for, for who you are, sort of re- regards you, holds you in regard for who you are without judging uh, or without making assumptions. Mm. And being validated, I think, is very much about being seen by others and by ourselves in those eyes, kind of through that lens. Mm-hmm. And how do you see the link between how others see us and how we see ourselves? Oh, that's a huge question. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. yeah, I guess that's what I'm aiming that, 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 that this podcast covers is how people can feel that sort of feeling of self-worth from from within and the link between that and external validation mm-hmm. yeah. is quite interesting yeah absolutely I think that there is I think I mean there's there's certainly a link I think where there's often conflict is that the way that we judge ourselves um, and the way that we treat ourselves is often much more harshly than than others may treat us and and way absolutely we may treat others so I think kind of having a, a very much a, a compassion-based approach um, for ourselves, maybe even more than an empathic approach. Um, I'm very interested in the differences between empathy and compassion, and I kind of veer very much mm. towards compassion in the way that I think about the world rather than empathy, which I think can be helpful but also can be unrealistic and even dangerous at times. Um, mm. but for, Could you say a bit more about that? Yeah, For example, I think that empathy has become something that we've been sort of marketed Mm -hmm. all and end all, that all we have to do is to be empathic to others and uh, and then the world will be an amazing place. But I think that empathy is something that empathy is something that judges and discriminates. I can only have empathy for a certain amount of people in my life at any given moment. And if I'm forced to try and place myself in the shoes of too many people, all at the same time, then I start to get tired. I start to feel burnt out by that. I also think that, for example, politically, we're sort of sold images of empathy as the be all and end all. So, you know, to justify us going to war, the press and our politicians, in order to make their case, they show us images of starving children and and, and babies uh, in terrible states of neglect and trying to sort of toddlers playing around in war zones. 
that make us sort of think to ourselves, oh, we've got to agree that we go to war there because we can't, we, we empathise so strongly with those images that it affects our ability to be objective. So do you mean that that they're trying to get us to put ourselves in their shoes to try and yeah. feel what they're feeling? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm. And at that point, mm. that can affect our objectivity about whether or not it might be the right thing to go to war. I mean, that's just an example, the sort of the war example. If I'm thinking about empathy and, and I have to sort of make big decisions about, you know, let's say there's sort of five people in my life or 10 people in my life and I have to choose to save three of them, then, then I'm sort of looking at my son um, and then I'm looking at my son's mums, I'm looking at my family um, and thinking about saving them, whereas I might kind of, um, and this is an extreme example, but I might not be so interested in saving somebody that I don't know because I can't climb into their shoes or because I only have the ability to climb into so many sets of shoes at any given moment. Whereas if I think about compassion, then I can hold compassion for everybody in the world, if you like. I can hold compassion Hmm. for for the rights of everybody to have a roof over their head, and I can hold compassion for everyone um, that that everybody needs to have dignity and, and, and equality and to be treated with respect and love. I can hold compassion for far more people than I can hold empathy, particularly because there's, I mean, in our work as well, you know, we do sometimes work with people that that maybe we don't feel a strong like for, people who have committed really horrible Mm. crimes, incidents that have been terrible for others, people who maybe have committed child abuse or uh, may have, uh, people who are imprisoned for murder or for manslaughter. And, and committed horrible crimes to people. And if I'm working with, with people like that, then there's only so much empathy I might be able to hold for them without beginning to think, actually, I don't really like this person in front of me. Whereas with compassion, I can absolutely stay present in, a, in an unconditional way. Yeah. So there's something about perhaps how, you know, I've never thought about this before. This is really interesting. And I did my core training was um person-centered so I have thought quite a lot about <laughs> about empathy um but how our ego is involved in empathy perhaps how we um in order for us to turn on switch on empathy we have to actually access a part of ourselves and perhaps we can't do that um unendingly exactly, exactly. Or, or we can't do it without our stuff getting involved it may, perhaps it's um not possible for that to not get in there Exactly. Mm. And I might, you know, for example, I'm probably like, I mean, you know, within that, I suppose we have to think about who we are. Like, you know, I come from a pretty working class background. I'm a white guy, um, a white gay man. So I can like, I suppose I'm more, it's it's easier for me to be able to switch on the empathy for like, for people who, have, who I, I've, I believe I've been through different, certain things in a similar way, people that I can identify mm. with that then leads me also to maybe making assumptions, but it's easier for me to spend yes. the empathy for like-minded people or people who I, who I judge to be like-minded and for me to have maybe less empathy or find it more of a challenge for other people or different age groups, um, different social classes, whereas that for me isn't an issue with compassion. Mm. Um, there was one, there's one of them written, I can't remember the, who by, but it was called something like Rational Compassion, <laughs> and it really does... About this case, the case for compassion over empathy. Uh, the book sort of makes the point that empathy is is always destructive, which I don't agree with. But that's fascinating. It certainly does bring up a lot of areas of, of thinking about the two and how they might differ and how that 
like how they might be similar. Mm, I'm going to look that out and I will put it on the notes for the podcast. Mm. Can you remember the first time that you realised that you you have worth and that you're important? So it's, a, it's a funny old question, this thing of importance. Like, mm. I think that I'm important and I think I'm completely unimportant and meaning meaning and, and have no meaning at the same time. It, it's, I can't, for me, it's more about realising our own power than our own importance. Marco Aurelio said, uh, he said something that always stayed with me that I think was a, that kind of speaks to this concept of where all this notion of how important we are. He sort of compared, it, compared us to sand or he used an analogy around sand and he said, consider that the heaps of sand piled on one another hide the former sands so in life, the events which go before are soon covered by those which come after. Mm. And I kind of really like that because it, it, it sort of illustrates that, yes, we're important and then other things come along and we were only as important. We're, we're sort of important in a relative kind of way. I mean, I believe after I die, maybe some of my thoughts or words or beliefs um, ways of behaving, ways of being will be passed on to my son and towards other people in my life who have known me, my patients, my friends, my colleagues, to a certain extent, for good or for bad as well, um, to a certain extent. And then gradually I'll become about as meaningful and as important as a grain of sand that's replaced sand. by another. And there's, <laughs> like, there's also a bit of a liberty in that, I think. There's a sort of a sense of freedom yeah. that comes with, with a, you know, maybe kind of... Uh, I'm thinking Italian. I'd like to uh, um, yeah. separate our our sense of importance, um, which can often be also quite ego based. Yeah, yeah. So I think we're unique, and I think it's important in life to search for meaning, and I think it's important in life to acknowledge our own power and the impact, um, and to never underestimate our power. But I don't know how important I am. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, and that's something that also I think is kind of involved in this whole sort of self-worth journey that I've been going on is the is the language as well uh, finding the the language that um how that can really kind of shift and change mm. um how we think about these things yeah like the language we choose to use and that we find ourselves yes. with. yeah yeah no, I agree yeah. The reason I ask this question is because I have, this is all about me. <laughs> I have a um, a time when I remember when I was probably about 12, someone, a good family friend, for the first time, actually, I remember feeling through this good family friend's eyes, actually, that I'm someone like she was, she spoke to me in a way that was um, like she valued me and that I was, mm. I had something interesting to say. And her doing that to me meant that I, I was like, oh, I actually, maybe I have something that other people, you know, maybe there's something about me that other people might be interested in. And I wondered if you'd, you might not have had any experience like that. I mean, I, I you know, that's very specific to my childhood, mm. uh, my life, but I wondered if you had anything like that that had happened to you as you'd grown up. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the question because I'm also interested in how we communicate. Mm. I think what we're communicating in, in what you're describing there is a validation, like, a sense of being seen by someone and by ourselves, a sense of being noticed. Yes. It's a bit like when we're, you know, when we're born and when we're toddlers or when we're babies. Um, mm -hmm. I think the way in which, uh, I mean, this sort of speaks a little bit to attachment theory, but 
you know, the way in which our caregiver, or our mom or our dad, uh, or our primal caregiver, the way in which they kind of, the way in which they gaze, the way in which they look at yes, helps us feel, helps us develop whether a sense of self-worth or not, helps us to understand mm-hmm. whether we have value just by a glance. And, and I think that makes an incredible amount of difference to how we see ourselves and how able we are to present ourselves um, to the world in a way that sort of respects the unconditional positive regard. I mean, when I found my current analyst, which was who's a Jungian analyst a couple of years, maybe three years ago now, I said to her in the first session, she said, you know, sort of what are you looking for? You know, what do you want to achieve in, in your work, in our work together? And I said, I don't know whether or not you'll be the right therapist for me. I said to her, I have no idea, but I do know that I'm not. I'm much less interested in your approach and in your opinions and what you've got to say. And I'm much more interested in how you look at me. That some yeah. and I said, I, and if you don't manage to look at me in the way that works for me, that's not because there's anything wrong with you. But it's more that I know what I'm looking for, and I, I'm looking for a way of of a sort of a gaze that's maybe not dissimilar to the way that like, that that parent or caregiver in an ideal world would. Yeah. Doesn't feel too intrusive or too invasive, but it's it has kind of regard and respect somehow mm. attached to that gaze, um, and with no kind of agenda. Yeah, exactly. That's and my she, that's my stuff. <laughs> she looks at me like that, <laughs> so it, it worked. Mm. Um, it hasn't always worked with many therapists in the past, well, and I also haven't been as aware that that's what I needed or wanted. Um, my next door neighbour, Patsy, when I was a kid, she used to look at me as well did Marie, who's my, um, my. it's a long story, which I'm not going to know, but my adopted sister's mum used to look at me with that kind of way of making me feel wanted and affirmed and valid. Yeah. And probably at the time, I suppose, yeah, I did, when I was younger, feel important when that happened. And I think that when you're younger, when you're when you're a kid in particular, then it is more important to feel important because when you're a kid, life, is, the world really should be all about you as a kid, and it is all about you. Yeah, you're sort of growing, so you need to have that focus. But then, as we get older, we gradually sort of can make a bit of a separation from that. And I think so. I think when I talk about maybe not being important, I think about that more philosophically than that we're not important. But I think about it more in relation to the world, in relation to nature, in relation to the planet, that actually we're, yeah. we're meaningful and meaningless at the same time. But as a kid, it is important maybe to have that sense of, yeah, of, of being important. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's just made me feel, I, I kind of wish I could get to that point of feeling just as like a grain in, of, of sand. I guess mm. maybe my ego still needs a bit more attention. <laughs> <laughs> And maybe that's why I'm doing this podcast as well. <laughs> yeah. I think the ego is um, it's almost like it's, an, it's a really interesting area because I, I think about ego states, kind of the work of ego mm. states, which are very much about recognising our different parts. But, but that somehow within us, as well as having our ego, that's an important part of us. And, but, but it's also kind of important to find that, that figure of authority inside. I don't mean author, in an authoritarian way, but... A, a sort of a figure of authority. Yes. Maybe like in an orchestra, you know, like you've got um, you've got kind of all sorts of different instruments uh, that can play in an orchestra, and, and but then you've got a conductor who's there to kind of 
to kind of go, oh, yeah, we need the violins now and then we need to like close those down a little bit yeah. and then fade in and fade out to different to different instruments. And, and if the violins were just playing at all times, then it would be a fairly horrible kind of screechy performance. But if they're <laughs> like used in the right way and in the right moment, then then those violins are great. They're fab and they, they kind of make it a, a, a sort of a, a fantastic experience. And in a way, yeah. I suppose we need that kind of conduct our own internal conductor or parent or authority figure or whatever we want to call Well, yeah, maybe that's kind of a little bit of what you were getting at before around feeling empowered, feeling, and then again, maybe that's to do with the language again, but about being able to feel that we have, you know, we have import, see now I'm going around in circles with the the words, but it does feel that it has something to do with empowerment to me and feeling that if I do something, it has, there's consequences for it. And for me and for others, you know, like having my own orchestra and being my my conductor of my own orchestra and how, if everything that I do has an impact on who I am and how I am in the world and, and, but also it can impact others. Exactly. How it impacts others. And the fact that, you know, one instrument is important for that moment in which you need it. Yeah. And then it ceases to be important as another part, another instrument or another ego state takes importance. And then it might be that we come back to a different instrument again or the same instrument and make it again. And then we calm it and we sort of move between them. Yeah, yeah. And with different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's making me think about a few different things. But I wondered if you thought at all about how kind of self-esteem and self-worth in terms of the, the, the theoretical framework that you use and your experience, if that, how you would kind of frame that? Yeah. Um, when I think about, for example, trauma, like a lot of my work over the years has been either personally attending to critical incidents, so after kind of natural disasters, I've I've attended after terrorist attacks, after natural disasters, after road crashes, traffic accidents, all sorts of different kind of critical incidents, and as well sent, you know, counsellors and therapists around the world to attend to sort of major events and small events as well. I think that often what happens is, because, because traumatic incidents are really stressful, one of the things that I think that can happen as a result of stress in life is what we call post-traumatic growth and a sense of resilience. So whilst I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish trauma on anyone, at the same point, it is a part of life. It is one of those things that, that just happens to us, whether it's trauma with a big T or with a small T. Mm. The, the stress that comes with it can really bring afterwards a sense of, I managed that, I, I got through that. And, and as a result of that trauma, I really began to think more carefully maybe about how I'm living my life, about what my priorities are, about whether I actually want to stay in that job that I've been moaning about for years or whether I want to stay in that relationship that maybe hasn't worked for me um, or whether actually I definitely decide as a result I do want to stay in my job. I do want, you know, I evaluate my priorities or and I do love my partner, or whatever it might be. But that within that, there's a sense that if you can process trauma well to a point where you can integrate it into your life then what comes with that is an incre- is an improved sense of self sense of awareness yes sense about who yeah. we are and what we pride want maybe and pride for sure um and just sense of kind of grit a sense of like resilience like i managed to get yeah. that and that's told me something about myself that i maybe didn't know and that can help you feel more kind of i guess more balanced more grounded Mm-hmm. Um, 
and, and increase your sense of self. So I do think trauma and stress are life situations that may not be comfortable, but by forcing us out of our comfort zone, they also force us to take a bit of a good look at ourselves and think more more discerningly and more carefully about who we are and how we're going to live. And I see that as very positive. Yeah. I was thinking you also said something about pride, mm. um, which makes me think of shame. <laughs> um, oh, does it? That's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if they're the opposite of each other, actually. I don't think they probably are. I've wondered that. <laughs> but that shame is one of those... Like what one of the things that comes with trauma is that we often develop negative beliefs about ourselves and about the world in which we live if we don't manage to process and integrate well the trauma. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I don't know, like you know, if, if you, I'll give you a really horrible example, but just to illustrate a point, you know, if you live, if you leave like I don't know, a six-year-old kid in a in a dark room on their own all day, you lock them in, you don't give them food, you don't look after them, you just leave them there all day. Then, as well as that kid you know feeling really distraught and lonely and all of those awful things that they would feel from having been abandoned and neglected in that way that child is invariably not thinking to themselves oh my mum and dad aren't doing their job properly that's really bad parenting for my mum and dad they should be doing their job properly and they're not essentially what that that kid will come out of that that room at the end of the day believing is there's something wrong with me there wasn't something wrong with me their mum or dad would have been there I'm not likable. I'm not lovable. I'm yes, they'll take it. They'll sort of take it within themselves yeah. that they're bad and they hold that kind of shame. Exactly, exactly. And then if they believe that about themselves, which they will do after trauma, if they don't manage to process and integrate that trauma properly, is that they will then gradually go through their lives feeling as though they're not good enough, feeling as though there's something wrong with them, making decisions that that sit on that negative belief of maybe there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I don't deserve, um, I don't deserve to live well. So, and and the longer that goes on, the more the shame kind of yeah. develops and yeah. that becomes really toxic. Absolutely. And so would you, would you find in your experience that if someone has a traumatic experience as an adult and, and has that kind of history, that, that sort of unprocessed toxic shame from trauma of, of um, childhood, would you find that they'd be less likely to feel that kind of um sense of i've survived this i'm and and being able to move on or not is that maybe it's not that straightforward yeah i think that when you have unresolved trauma in your part i mean trauma reawakens unprocessed trauma unintegrated trauma or blocked trauma so if i'm an adult and i've had a pretty i'm an adult if i'm an adult and i've had a fairly good life and think i was generally supported as i grew up and looked after and and, uh, and attended to in a healthy kind of way and then I have let's say a road traffic accident there's a there's a very good chance that my post-traumatic growth will be easier to come to because I'm not really reawakening mm-hmm. other, other trauma and my expectation is that I'll be supported and I'll be okay whereas if I have an, a, a, a traumatic event happen to me as an adult and I had a a history of of trauma happening to me as I grew up, and not being supported, and not having so, and being socially isolated, then my expectation is is more likely to be that I'm not going to get through. That those negative self beliefs and beliefs about the world will all be triggered off, um, and it'll be more difficult for me to access growth as a result. And do you find that EMDR can be helpful for working with these different types of trauma? Yeah, I do. I think I think therapy in general is is. It, you know, when you're lucky enough to find the right person that works for you and that you can work with, 
Um, I think therapy is, is, is an incredible resource. However, with therapy, as, if, when you're the, as a therapist, you can really make amazing connections and incredible hypotheses about what is bringing your patient or your client to you and what difficulties they're facing. And you can come out with amazing interventions to your client that basically fall on deaf ears or somehow don't have that. You can be all excited as a therapist and you've got the best mm. intervention in the world and it falls on deaf ears mm-hmm. and your client just somehow can't hear it. It doesn't resonate with them. It do- somehow doesn't make any kind of an internal shift of any real value. Mm-hmm. Yet with EMDR, because the therapist kind of takes a bit of a backseat and that you, you're you working with your client to kind of relook at the trauma and come in a very safe way face-to-face with that trauma, and the connections that your your brain makes itself are, are equal, if not better, than those connections that the therapist would make. Because somehow the fact that mm. you're making it yourself, that you're arriving your, there yourself, can create almost more of a physical shift rather than it just being mm. a, kind of a rational connection that makes sense. Yes. EMDR can really help you make that physical shift. Um, and trauma, trauma tends to be blocked in our bodies. Yes. Could you say a little bit more about that? Because that really resonates for me, but um, I'm not sure if, if listeners will, will understand mm. what we mean by that. Could you say about how that might manifest itself? Let's say in my office, my current office, I've been there for the last eight years. It's a safe space. Nothing nothing bad has ever happened to me in there. Um, it's always been a very safe sort of space for me. Mm-hmm. Let's say that uh, somebody then came and held me up with a gun. They broke into my office whilst I was in there and held me up with a gun. Um, coming in through the door. Well, whilst that traumatic experience remained unintegrated and unprocessed into my life, then every time somebody came, came would to come near the door, I would startle. My body would move as I yeah. saw somebody coming towards the glass of the door and my body would have a reaction, even if there's nobody there with a gun again. Mm-hmm. And so the trauma that's unprocessed is being held in my body just as after people who have been in relationships that have been uh, physically or psychologically violent, particularly physically or aggressive, that then as people come towards that person again, who may not be the aggressor, their body will flinch, their body will move mm. as if the situation was happening again. Yeah, and then I guess what would happen would be almost like your body would be telling you, like um, Bessel van der Kork says, you know, the body keeps the score. So mm-hmm. your body tells you, and then your your mind's like, oh, hang on a sec, there's a threat. So you so you you start thinking the, the thoughts of a threat, and then it, and then you feel it even more in your body, and it kind of goes around in a vicious circle. Exactly, exactly. But with the with the Italian Association of EMDR, who I'm affiliated with, the association worked a lot with survivors of, with Italian survivors of the tsunami. Who were there at the tsunami mm. at the time? Who would who were dive instructors? Uh, who were working there in the, in in hotels and around the beach areas? And you know, they after after the tsunami and they were eventually and they were flown back home. Many of them were having physical effects when they would go near water. They wouldn't want to be near water again. Um, they'd find water mm. too disturbing to be near. They would have an impact about the idea of having a bath or a shower. Yes. They wouldn't want to go near a beach. Mm-hmm. And through, Even the smell of it, maybe. Exactly, absolutely, absolutely. And through working with EMDR, many of those Italian survivors are now back working in exactly those hotels and in exactly those places because That's now their, their bodies are, are no longer holding that trauma. It's not that the trauma didn't happen, but it's that the trauma is now firmly back in the past that, it's not yes. that this beach or this hotel is dangerous. That day it was dangerous. 
But now here in 2021, it's no longer dangerous and I'm safe. Mm-hmm. And so they can go there, they can sleep, they can do their jobs. Um, they can be in exactly the same places as they were when it happened. And they're, they're no longer physically activated. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. We're coming to the end of our time together. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you. And um, I wondered if you have any particular exercise that you might work on that you might find helpful for yourself or that you might find that your clients find particularly helpful. Uh, maybe you don't necessarily talk about I mean, sort of self-esteem. I do talk about, I do think about self-esteem. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things, I mean, I, I'm not a CBT kind of therapist, so I don't really tend to give homework. But I do very occasionally give sort of exercises around where I try and get people who have who have been who do who don't have a great sense of self or who don't feel particularly confident um, in themselves and in who they are. I try and sort of give them a little exercise. Maybe it's almost like you've got to pretend to be an actor. So you don't have to pretend that you are really confident, but that you decide that you're going to be like an actor and you take on a project and that. That project might be to go to the bar or to go to a coffee shop, um, to get on the bus, to get on the metro or to get go on the tram and, and try and play the part of somebody that is very confident. Try and play mm. the part of somebody who's really comfortable in their own skin. Mm-hmm. Try and notice as you walk into a bar or into a coffee shop, the eye contact that you make um, with the person yeah. the, ca- the cash till. Try and notice where your shoulders are as you're playing that yeah. part. So it's like you're not trying to be yourself. You're literally trying to be somebody else and imagine what their body language was like. Were they playing a part in a film? Um, so to notice body language, notice the tone of the voice, notice the way that, that you might look at them, uh, you might look at other people, notice the types of conversations you might, ha- you might yes. have, the types of comments you might make as you say good morning or good afternoon or how you're doing or whatever it might be. Notice the way you get on the bus. Notice how yeah. that person who's confident or who's who's comfortable in their own skin might act. So it's not like you're trying to sort of convince yourself that you feel better than you are, but it's more about trying to like get into the role, get into the shoes, if you like. That's where you can yes. empathy maybe in a healthy way to climb into the shoes of somebody else and imagine if they as an actor exactly what they'd be doing and how differently that exchange or interaction might be. Um, from one of your own and in doing that you build awareness but you're also giving yourself a little bit of a flavor of of maybe what could happen of maybe what could be needed and what it feels like to be treated and seen as somebody with self-worth to sort of begin to feel how the other responds to you as a result even if they don't know that you're acting and what that's like so so little exercises like that I might give in a sort of a very hopefully uninvasive way that can be a bit of fun too yeah, I really like the sound of that, actually. I think I could I could enjoy that. And it's made me think about when I was a teenager and um, traveling in, in France, actually talking about other countries. And um, my the friend that I was traveling with had just done French A-level, so I was very familiar with French, but she couldn't. we couldn't get anyone to, to speak to understand what we were saying. Mm. And then her father came to join us for the end of our holiday, and he didn't have particularly good French, but he was really confident about mm-hmm. just really getting into the whole, you know, yeah. speaking the language with a bit of flamboyancy and and everyone understood him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and so it's that thing of actually just being able to 
step into that kind of role. They're almost like an actor, exactly. just like, yeah, I've got something to say, and you, you, you might want to listen to it, you know. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. And even if you don't believe it yourself, if you're doing in the shoes of someone else, so you are acting, but then enjoying maybe the exchange that comes with it and noticing the exchange that comes with it. Yeah, how that feels. Yeah. Okay, well, thank you very much, Phil. That's been really interesting. And thanks for that exercise. There are several things that we've talked about that are really helpful, I think, but also um, familiar for those in the counselling and therapy world, but maybe less so for people that aren't. So I'll, I'll add some information at, um, in the in the um, podcast show notes to explain some of this, because yeah. I'm sure people want to read more about it. But thank you very much, Phil. Thanks a lot for spending the time. Not at all. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to The Validation Lounge with me, Sasha Jenkin. We use various terminology throughout the podcast and you might understand and be aware of all of these, but if not, I've made a list of them and how to get an explanation of them in the show notes. And finally, I'd be really grateful for your feedback if you wanted to get in touch and you can do that by accessing the website, which is validationlounge.com. Thank you. Thank you.